means for reflection. First one, I'm going to say the word again, like I did a couple of weeks ago when I talked about kindness, for you to see what your responses are to the word. So one of the themes I want to explore this morning is about space. Space. And just see what your responses are. Mental responses, felt responses, spatial responses. Because if we're to explore anything, we have to be willing to see what we're bringing to a theme. Because if we want to find out something new, we are always being invited to step beyond what we know. And even if we have known space at different levels, the encounter with it here and now is always immediate, is always fresh, is always new. The Buddha said, develop a mind that is vast like space, where experiences both pleasant and unpleasant can appear and disappear without conflict, struggle, or harm. Rest in a mind like vast sky. Rest in a mind like vast sky. So how's that going? In the Buddhist tradition, you see um, mostly two approaches to liberation in terms of uh, what is pointed to. And one is the path that is mostly found in the Theravada, which is the exploration and investigation into experience. Right, And so we develop the mind, we get a little bit more still, we start to look deeply and we start to look into experience. And the Buddha says, look at it from this point of view, that, look, it changes. You see that? Look, it's not you in any fixed way, because if it was you, you would control it differently. You'd make it different. There's no core at the center of it that's you. And he said, and if you hold on, you suffer. Right? So those three characteristics. So we explore experience in order to see that we can't make home there in any real way. And that invites us to start to maybe intuit at first, or be, sometimes we feel called, for, uh, called upon uh, to know that which is not just bound, actually. And then the other orientation, more primary in the Mahayana. They're not absolutely split, but this is where you you see the more teachings in this direction, is pointing directly at the nature of the liberated mind. Right? Instructions that point directly and say, look, it's here. It's our clinging that closes us down to realizing this. But this openness, this Uh, many, many words can be used which fall short usually. But this, what we are when we're not clinging, is already here. Realize this here and now. And actually both orientations are really valuable. We study experience so that we can, it lets go of us. When we come close up to experience, it keeps letting go of us, right? Of course, we see where we're holding on. That's where our work is. But the Buddha isn't always saying, just study experience and keep kind of getting in there. We study experience in order to understand its nature 
and that its nature is that it can't provide us the satisfaction that we yearn for, that our heart wants to rest and deeply know home. We won't find that in the things. Not because we're doing something wrong, but because it's not their nature to provide that. And so we're invited into that unknown of the letting go and then not knowing actually where we're going to be left as we let go, as experience lets go of us. So I want to look a little bit about uh, at space. If you can look at space. So um, somebody gave me a National Geographic magazine called Space, and I got really excited. Oh, that's really interesting. I wonder what they talk about in National Geographic in that space. I brought it here to show you. So I was really excited. I thought, okay, let's see. And I didn't find anything about space. It was all about the things that are in space, which are amazing. Which are amazing. Right? I might get you a bit too excited in the middle of the retreat, but there's some pretty amazing pictures in here, as you can probably imagine, of what shows up in space. And I kept turning, and there was nothing actually about space. There was this amazing construction here, and this one we don't quite know what it's about over here. And fantastic. But nothing about the space. right? And that's because that's the part we overlook. right? We don't... Notice the space. We notice the things in space. So that first path, explore the things in space, explore experience, because that's where we get snagged. That's where we get hooked. That's where we start to try and make home. And sooner or later we get ejected. Right? Whether it's we're trying to make home in the mind state, in the body state, in the meditative experience... It can't last. And no matter how much we know that, we keep having to learn it deeper and deeper and deeper. Because our fixation with the things in space is extraordinary. Especially when they're more colourful and more amazing. Or very painful and very contracted. So I thought of, I'm sure there aren't any of you who are quite old enough for this, but it's, there's a free poster inside, which is 50 years exploring space. Right? Have any of you been exploring space for as long as 50 years? And I don't just mean physical space, outer space. Right? But when we turn the attention, at first it looks like it's inner, and that's a very valid turn, to the inner space. 50 years of exploring space, or at least it's three weeks, for you know, three weeks of exploring space. Space is usually only implicit in our practice, or not usually only, often only implicit in our practice. And if you're sitting there thinking, I haven't experienced any space this month. (coughs) It may be that you haven't consciously experienced space, but it's implicit in the very fact of you showing up. Our nature is an openness. It's an openness. And everything that gets kind of overlaid on that, all our ideas of what we're doing and who I am and who you are, and all of that that gets overlaid on that is kind of secondary. More fundamentally, we are an openness. But it's very hard to realize this because it's so close, it's so fundamental, it's 
prior, even though the word, the language of time is problematic, but in certain way we could say it's prior to all the conceptualizing that we do about ourselves, about experience. We are, you are, an openness. And it is the appearance of things that that openness closes down and we experience ourselves far from an openness. We experience ourselves as a closed loop, as a separate self, as an isolated one here with the rest of the world out there. That's the appearance So in practice we're asked to keep studying the appearance because it can't stand up actually to scrutiny, to close looking. But I'll get there in a minute. So right now an awareness in a sense is an openness. From the point of view of awareness does not matter what's going on actually. And it's so fundamental if I say to you now, okay, see if you can follow this instruction. Stop being aware right now. Stop it. Right? Become mindless. Right? And you might notice actually the awareness is just here, it's open. There's an openness. The openness is not always realized, recognized, but it's implicit. Implicit that you're open to practice. Open to learn. It's a condition necessary for something new to arise. Right? When we say someone has an open mind. It's a condition necessary for something new to be seen. Something genuinely fresh to be understood. And this space, this openness is implicit in the Buddha's teachings. His awakening, his realization and his articulation of the realization in the extraordinary, precise way that he did that came about because our nature is an openness. Those insights don't come into a closed circuit. And we know that. All of us know the closed circuit very well. Right? That's where the compassion is born. When we see the human pain of the, what appears like a closed circuit, this separate sense of self, with my experience, my struggle, my work, my, my peace. Right? The Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, um, all the extraordinary expressions come because there's an openness. And in practice, we also not only leave that space, that openness implicit, we also let it become more explicit. We may start to recognize the space, the openness, a little bit more, as we slow down, as we get more sensitive, we may start to intuit that the world and experience is not just all these discrete objects arising, thought, feeling, sensation, sound, taste, touch. Right? They'll keep arising. We may also intuit the space around. What is it that lets you be aware of thought? The awareness of the thought is not the thought. The sensitivity to our painful states is not the painful states. And again, because it's the backdrop, it's like the magazine about space. There's nothing about the space, it's about the things in space. But can we start to open to what is normally implicit, 
i.e. the space. Getting a taste for absence, for things that don't call so loud. Developing a taste or a sensitivity to where the appearance of objects shows no objects. So just take a moment now and sense that in terms of the outer space, if you like. Right, A room is absolutely characterized by openness, this meditation hall. If you let your eyes be soft and tune, tune your attention to perceiving the openness. Most of this room is openness. In fact, when we look really, really deeply, as we go into practice, we'll also see that the objects are also openness. But if we take it uh, at this point in terms of space and objects, absence and things, we're the the things, apparently, the plants, the statues, the cushions, and there's the openness. It's a very common exercise visually for artists to do that. To kind of shift the perception a little bit, to see the space. Why? Because appearance of objects looks different when we open up to the space. But we can be ambivalent about space, even though we might love that quote from the Buddha. Cultivate a mind that is vast like space. Oh, yes, rest, he says, rest. Rest in the mind that is vast like the sky. Probably the response is yes. But what happens then when we encounter space? What happens for you in the presence of absence, we could say. When there isn't so many pictures in the National Geographic to look at, externally or internally. One of the things that happens when we encounter space, and again, it doesn't have to be explicit yet, it can still be implicit, You will have space, even if you recognize it or not. In fact, you are space, whether you recognize it or not. One of the things that happens is that it seems to put pressure on all of our limited, closed, constructed senses of ourself. It will let them come forward to be seen and recognized. So even though we may be, you know, having a nice meditation and things are going well and then we go and walk in the corridor and suddenly we're furious because, you know, I don't know what it might be. Somebody's left the door open. Somebody's left the front door open and it's cold and and suddenly this rant arises and, right, there's you and then there's everybody else and no one's taking care of things properly here and... Right, off we go. And this sense of the world appearing as separated, this closed sense here that isn't properly being taken care of, and all those guys out there who are doing it, as one example. As one example. When we're a yogi, when we're on retreat, the mind is very sensitive, we're very sensitive. So it's not wrong that those things arise. But it's really, absolutely, it's actually very good that those things can be seen. But we're asked to study it. To study it. To see the appearance of where this sense of separate self arises. And to keep looking. To not just be fooled by appearances. This is what practice and looking deeply is. To not be satisfied with how things appear on the surface.
let me give some examples of the ways on retreat that we can suddenly show up as this separate sense of self. When I first heard these kind of teachings, and my teacher would say something like, can you perceive self arising? I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. What do you mean self arising? There's me, right? But if we keep... So if it doesn't make sense, if it's not your experience yet, keep hanging out. Keep exploring. Self is not actually the ultimate state of things. We, this separate sense of self, arises. It's another constructed thing that arises in order to pass. And actually this can be known. Once or as we deepen, as we open more to the space, when self arises, we can actually start to see it from that perspective of space. And the perspective of space shifts the perspective of what's going on. So somebody mentioned the other day uh, something like, oh, I could see that my judgment that was arising about you know, various of people I could see that it was a construction. I could tell it wasn't real. I was kind of in it, kind of believing it to some degree, but I could tell it wasn't real. I could tell it wasn't the whole story because I've seen enough that things come and go. I've seen enough that the perspective of space is much closer to what I am. So some examples to make this more concrete... Self can show up everywhere. And in practice, we're not asked to be self-bashers. Right? Dharma practice is not to try and annihilate ourselves. This can be the other extreme view that we can go to when we see how problematic it is and how clunky and clumsy it feels to have this separate sense of self. We can think, oh, great, Dharma teachings, no self, phew, that sounds better. Right, let's try and get rid of that. That's not the point. Right? That can be fueled with aversion. And we might, through aversion, clear a bit of space for a while, but then all those selves will re-arise if we haven't fully understood what's going on. So one place uh, would be everywhere, but one place would be the work period, right? Especially if we're doing a work period with other people there. Because self very often arises, one place we can see it it very easily is in relation to other, right? So, broad way of looking at it. In the teachings, they talk about, uh, on very broad senses of self, that people are either prone more to being an aversive type of self, Aversive, so that's the kind of, uh, anyone who doesn't know what aversion is yet, aversion, aversive t- uh, tendencies are the f- whole family from hate, rage, irritation, scratchiness, that kind, of, that kind of family. Aversive types, greedy types, which are more kind of have, have, get, get. right? Or deluded types, which is confusion, it's kind of between aversion and greed. It's like not really, not being able to land. It's very, they're all very painful, actually. And in the work period, we may see, I don't know, we're chopping carrots. And we might start to notice the way we're chopping the carrots. <coughs> oh, wow. And normally we think, well, that's just how you chop carrots. I'm efficient, right? But we might start to feel the flavor of the mind, the quality of the mind that's chopping the carrots and the way we're really liking the way the blade goes in the board, right? 
from the perspective of space, we can start to feel that the mind can feel the energy of it, can feel, oh, get it, right? Trouble is, it's very hard. I mean, I say it like it's easy to see these things. It's not. Because any senses of self that we're used to, we actually believe they're who we are. We believe they are the truth. So it actually takes a lot of courage, a lot of practice, some relationship with the space to actually turn around and see what's going on. And feel it. Get inside of that self. (coughs) So that it can do what it's trying to do as it arises, is to be liberated. And liberated here does not mean, right, now I'm really liberated, I can really lay into this chopping board. Liberated is for that way of constructing to be allowed to move on in space and dissolve. You might actually realize people, my uh, colleagues normally tell me when I talk about these tendencies that it's very obvious which type I am, So, as, as I have more experience in one type than another. So you can, you'll probably be able to guess after a while. Um, the greedy type, chopping carrots, I don't know, what, what might you do? Maybe you can tell me. Right? You might start, I don't know, taking the chopping board to the side and sculpting a little rose out of the carrot or something, you know, making it more, wanting to make more of the job, wanting to bring something beautiful forth, and there can be something very beautiful in that. But when it's an addition, right, when it's an adding, when it's a because myself is invested in this, because wouldn't it be much nicer if all the carrots were rose-shaped in the dining hall? No, not just. They say that the greedy type, when you, uh, I mean a menu is a much easier way of seeing it, going into a restaurant, the aversive type chooses because they know, I don't want that, I don't want that, I don't want that, I don't want that, oh that leaves that, right? And the greedy type goes, well actually I'd quite like that and that, and that, and that, and maybe I'll have a bit of all of them, Right? And the deluded type, the confused type, of course we're not ultimately any of these, but we have a leaning, usually. The deluded type... I think this is it, actually. It's, it's the menu's there, and it's... And they're there with the menu for ages. Ages. Do you know someone like that? Ages. And it's really painful. It's really painful, and... My very close friends who have this as a primary tendency saying it's not fair, people always laugh at the deluded type, right? And in the work period, I mean, it just might take longer to find the knife and find the chopping board and wonder which way you want to chop the carrots. Sad, isn't it, that one always gets laughed at more. It's kind of, you know, at least because aversive types have a bit of kudos because they're really clear. Right? And greedy types like beautiful things, and that has a clear trajectory, but the confused type's very painful. It's like, I can't land. It's very painful. All, all very painful. The way you sweep, if you're the sweeper, and you hold the broom and you're grumpy that morning, it's like, right? right? Or you sweep the dust into really pretty kind of shapes and Hope that the people looking by will see, oh, look, I've created a dust Buddha on the, on the floor. Can you, can you see? Can you see? And I, and I don't want to laugh at the deluded type, but I'm not quite sure what happens with the dust and the Buddha. But can we see that? Can we know that we have these orientations and... Can we really be laugh very gently with ourselves? It's like because we normally invest in those kind of things, right? We'll find ourselves arising here in relation to everything, right? Everything in relation to the form, especially if we've been around the meditation block a few times, and we have a sense of you know, okay, I'm a vipassana meditator or whatever identity you have. And you may not even think 
you have any identification here in your meditation history until it gets challenged. Until it gets challenged. So I remember once uh, having sat very long years in Vipassana contexts. I didn't know I had any identification around that, but you know, we cling to anything. Clinging happens by default, actually, when we're when we're not at home, when we're not at rest in our deepest nature. The clinging is like a default option. The clinging to the nearest construction, actually. It's default. And if you've ever wondered where you are when you're not present, have you ever wondered where you are when you actually aren't aware of where you are? You're actually, we're actually building these senses of ourself, these constructions are taking place. What the Buddha refers to as the house builder, that we're building this house that we then appear and experience ourselves as separate. And in the realization, he sees the house builder. The house builder, he says, I see you, that the ridge pole gets shattered, the rafters cave in, and no more becoming. Right? And maybe you can sense that metaphor of the, the, the house builder, no more house building. It's a lot of space. It's a lot of space. A lot of room, a lot of freedom. And this is why the teaching is very compassionate to look really deeply into this if we're really interested in freedom. So so I had this identity I didn't know I had. And then I decided to do some Zen practice um, with a Zen teacher. And I loved it, I really appreciated it. But the, the form is different. Right? The form is different, so you sit facing the walls, and it's very, very group-oriented. Um, so you, you, they ring the bell, and everyone stands up together. They ring the bell, and everyone sits down together. Right? So there I was, somewhere over there, sitting facing the wall, and it was about half an hour, and bell rang. And everyone stood up, and I could feel this self, I'm not going to stand up. I like sitting for longer. Right, but everyone's standing up, and you know that's the form here. And I could see in that moment, ah, there's an identity here. There's an identification here with the way it should be. Right, that's better. It's better that you sit longer. Right, you get better samadhi if you sit longer, or whatever it is. Right, and actually, sometimes you do get better samadhi if you sit longer. Not necessarily. Right? Not necessarily. But then I remembered, oh, that's right, this teaching is about freedom from clinging. Okay, okay, I'm on board, I'll stand up. Right? It's the teaching is about freedom from clinging. So when we see those senses of self arise, without pushing them away, can we get inside of them and see the pain in them, actually? The suffering. It can happen a million ways here. Maybe an identification we have, again, that we wouldn't know until we're in the silence and the stillness, for example, with the kind of person I am. And let's say outside of here, you know yourself as a funny kind of person. Right? You know how to make people laugh. And that's beautiful. All these things themselves are not problematic. It's the clinging to them. And the way then we can, you know, let's say we were the class joker when we're 12 and then by the time we're 18, that's always who we are in a group of people. Or often who we are. And we feel the bondage of that. And yet we're wedded to it. So that we're sitting in here and... It's been three serious Dharma talks in a row and 24 difficult meditations in a row. And we can feel that, come on. If I could just, you know, tell that person over there to lighten up a bit and 
maybe I could leave a joke on the board or, you know. The expression, the wish to make contact, no problem. The wish, the love for each other, no problem. But where it becomes an investment, where it gets a compelling energy behind it, right? where the energy is compelling to act in a certain way, and most oftentimes we don't see that it's compelling, it's just who I think I am. And so the freedom is, here we can stop where that compelling energy arises and let it empty out. Let it empty out. Some of our practice is an emptying. An emptying. From the perspective of space, the crud, as one of my teachers calls it, the crud. Crud is like, um, if you imagine earth, that's been trodden on a lot of times and the rains come and then it gets dry and you, you tread on it a lot, the little pieces of earth become very compacted and hard. It's like the crud. <coughs> At least that's how I'm using crud. And that our sense of self is normally very compacted and very firm and clear that what we, what we think we are, that this is who I am. With teachings, with practice, with sitting in the silence, that hard, compacted earth gets broken up and the crud, if you like, comes to the surface in order to be liberated. Liberated does not mean acted out. Liberated means known, received, sensed, allowed to to be liberated upon arising. Felt. See what other examples I can give you. Oh yeah. So um, we can take our sense of self in our mind states, and particularly then when we get let we're more looking at the inner, let's say, and there's certain mind states that arise that we think are me, and certain other ones that I'm happy to say yeah, it's not me, not mine. Right. So that can show up in a number of ways. One will be, let's say, with somebody who I know myself. I'm a, I'm, I generally experience myself, or often experience myself, as a hopeless kind of person. And there's some kind of view, some kind of self-view there. So that when, let's say, joy arises, we can, oh yeah, that's very nice, but I can see that it's, it comes and goes, right? But then hopelessness arises, and it's like, right, that's it now. This is the way things are. This is the fundamental ground. Right? I hear practice is to reveal more and more of what's actually true, and I found what's actually true is my hopelessness. We can have a conviction in certain mind states, probably because there's been a history with dwelling in certain ones and not others. So it's much harder to be with those as they arise. But can we see from the perspective of space that this too, this too, even though I can feel the clinging in the sense of the absolute belief that this is really who I am, and that's so painful. And we daren't risk letting ourselves perceive it in the here and now without building a story about it. Because if I perceive this right here and now, I feel it, I can feel the movement in it, and more importantly, I sense possibly the fear of who would I be if I wasn't this hopelessness. So as much as we like the idea of freedom from our most difficult mind states, there's actually a huge amount of courage that it takes to um, even imagine what it would be like to live without them. Because that's not mapped for us. At least these difficult mind states are mapped. I know them. And it's really astonishing. And it's not astonishing, it's very um, remarkable 
that we would even cling to our most painful ideas about ourselves, then be free. Such is the um, tenacity of the clinging and the fear of what's not known. <coughs> so if we look deeply or we're really right here in a moment, we can see the house building, the self building, and what it takes actually, self from a Dharma perspective in the sense of the problematic self, the self that is we experience as separate, is actually an incessant monologue about who I am. For the self to keep being constructed and believed, we have to keep telling ourselves the story of myself. That's how it keeps going. And that out of fear of not knowing or out of the not yet realizing who and what we are, beyond that, we pull back from the vastness, we pull back from the space, we withdraw and cling to the nearest thing to us, which might be my mind states, my feelings, the way it's put in the tradition is we pull back and we cling to the five skandhas. Right? If you haven't studied those yet, I'm not going to do a big explanation of those this time. But we pull back and cling to the five skandhas. Form, feeling, perception, karmic formations, right? our momentum, and sense consciousness. I, that's a whole study. That's basically what the clinging we cling to. And if you ever find yourself wandering around here vaguely, kind of not knowing what's going on or what you're doing or where to go to next, especially in the unscheduled moments, look at what's happening. One time here on a long retreat, I was... Again, we don't recognize what's happening initially. I was on a long retreat and finding myself in a, in a vague kind of wandering around, I don't know what I was doing, found myself hanging out by the washing up area. Yeah, that one there with the two lines of sinks. Looking at a bucket. You know how peculiar things become really interesting on retreat? Looking at a bucket. And of course, if people walk by, we don't want to be seen just staring at a bucket, so it's going kind to of, okay. <laughs> One of the things, of course, if you were here without all the rest of you, you might stare at buckets for longer. But... And it took a while, like, what's going on here? What am I doing? And I realized that I was staring. There, was, there used to be this white bucket with red pen on it saying used tea towels or something. I think it's something else now. But I was staring at the red writing that said used tea towels because I had written it about three years before. And it was the only reference to myself I could find in the whole building. Right? It's like, oh, I did that. That was me. See that red writing? That's me. Right? And there's some way that what we get from that is some little sense of security. It's like, okay, I can stand by the bucket now. Right? Now I know where I am. You may not have ever been a guy house coordinator to have ever written on a bucket, but it may show up in other ways. You know, hoping there's a note for you on the board. Hoping there isn't a note for you on the board. Same thing, actually. Because it's your name, you know, suddenly, oh yes, I know I'm empty and it's all arising and passing, and then there's a note with my name on it. Or not a note with my name. How come everyone else gets notes? How come I don't get notes? The way that we're looking for a reflection from the world or we're trying to avoid a reflection from the world. Same thing. Right? How are we to be in those moments when self is not referenced, when I'm not taking myself in my mind states, in my interaction with the others, 
when I'm not, yeah, you know, it will show up very much in the, the little stories we have about who everyone else here is as well. And some way, a very fundamental self-construction is a little view or a big view that may arise in the mind that I am either better than someone here or everyone here, worse than everyone here or someone here, or, this is where the Buddha is quite brilliant, the same as, that I'm the same as everyone here or someone here. All of these three positions are a conceit. All of them have the conceit of the separate self. Even if from a liberal egalitarian perspective to be equal to is a very good premise. Right? But any sense of positioning better than, worse than, same as, again is another way that we've divided the world, another way we're living through the concepts and we've lost contact with something that's much more fundamental to us, which is undivided, which is completely whole, which has no interest to, to uh, compartmentalize myself as at least knowing I'm worse than, at least I can feel relieved to know I'm probably the worst meditator here. Phew, okay. Right, now I know. Or that I'm the best. Or that, oh yeah, we're all, we're all equal. And just one final example of this, the construction of self. erase I won't tell you another example there are millions you can find your own so some of our work is when we do react where we do take hold where we can really study the clinging where we can see something arises, let's say a sorrow in the heart arises and I'm in reaction to it, I'm wondering what it means about me and what conclusion I can make about it and, and, and. Or we have a sorrow arise in the heart, we don't, we're not even that close, we're projecting it externally. And some of our work is when we're not in reaction when we're not building more, when we're not always having to reflect an experience back and say, what does this mean? Some of our work is developing this taste and sensitivity for more absence. So for example, the bird might ring, you might, the bird might ring, the bird might call, you might be sitting here at night I don't know if the owls are still around. Are the owls, aren't they great? Well, maybe I think they're great. You might have a different reaction. You know, they might spoil your samadhi. Or, right? But the owls toot. Often once everything's gone quiet here. Right? At night. Let's say the owl toots, hoots. Sometimes we'll sense the owl hooting and... We might start building around that, which is fine, no problem, but we might be, oh, I make a lovely poem about the owl, or I paint a picture of the owl, or I you know, wonder if I can go live somewhere where there's more owls, or whatever our mind does with that. Right? That's fine. And sometimes, other times, we'll be sitting in the stillness, in the silence, in the space, breathing in and breathing out, the owl hoot. And the hoot stops and fades away and leaves no trace. Do we have a sensitivity for that? What is it, we might wonder, 
from which the owl hoots and to which the hoot returns. That which is implicit but does not, cannot be conceptualized actually. We can say yes, there's space, but that doesn't help us. There's openness. We can give it names, but the names don't take us there. It's something closer to our nature, more fundamental than the conceptualizing that is already open. Sometimes a sorrow might pierce the heart and we might get busy with it. And other times the sorrow may pierce the heart and there may be some insights that come from it, but we're not doing anything. We may feel it, there may be an understanding that comes and it may be painful and it may move on and drop back into awareness. And in a sense, another being has been liberated. But you didn't go anywhere. You did nothing. Another time a thought might arise, what's for dinner? And we might get busy with it. And another time a thought might arise, what's for dinner? And it arises and it passes and it drops back. Leaving no trace. Can we develop a sensitivity for the mind that is vast? like space that is not dependent on years that is not something we work up to but is something that is right here and now and more fundamental than any notion we have of who and what we are. Develop a mind that is vast like space, where experiences both pleasant and unpleasant can appear and disappear without conflict, struggle, or harm. Rest in a mind that is vast like the sky. So let's rest for a moment together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.